Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Mad Mamluks podcast. My name is Sim. Alongside me is Sheikh Amr Saeed. Uh, we do not have Mahin on this episode today because he is out of town and uh, unable to attend for this podcast. He has not been fired, as uh, many of you guys always like to uh, assume. Assume, you know, when, whenever one of our shows is, is missing a host, uh, there's always a. Uh, theories that are popping up like oh he's was probably too hot or the mad mamluks uh sold out and they they can't handle different voices anymore it's not the case he's just out of town um all right we're really excited for today's episode we have a very distinguished uh, and and well-known guest that uh many people around the world know of uh, and i think many people in america are getting to know as well um uh, we wanted he, to pick this brain for a long time, right? He's a, he's a debater, he's a writer, author, and a uh, a person who is very uh, well known in debate circles around the, the 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 subject of the belief in a creator, right? So, without further ado, please welcome Hamza Sources. Assalamualaikum, brother Hamza. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. How are you guys? Alhamdulillah. How about you? I could never complain. Anything above a heartbeat is a bonus. You know, I, I've been wanting you on this on a show for so long because you you were a, a mentor of ours in many ways. Um, in, at least when I was younger, and trying to understand, um, you know, trying to make sure that I get my ideas sorted out. And uh, and you never know, like when you're halfway across the world or. Yeah. You're not necessarily halfway, but you're six six hours or seven hour flight. Uh, you are our murabi, and you didn't even know it. Yeah, yeah. So we we <laughs> <laughs> we've been getting a lot of the UK brothers on because they were a lot of uh, they were one of our in, in, inspirations, and they had so much of an effect on us when we were young. Uh, so we we want to help uh, you know br- make that bridge across the Atlantic and make sure that a lot of the young Muslims in America understand what. Um, a lot of the benefits that the UK brothers have to offer and not to toot our own horn we've also got uh, a pretty big following in the UK I was looking at the geographic stats of the UK just a couple days ago and we have listeners literally in every town in the UK it seems like so yeah alhamdulillah we're we're pretty excited about that so we're going to be bringing out much more uh, guests from the UK as well brilliant keep up the great work we love preserve you and bless you and check your intentions make sure the sound yeah. and the align to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and I think uh, it's just going to progress from there inshallah inshallah so uh, brother Hamza you, you just recently came out with this book called the divine reality and I, I wanted to make sure that we hit this book early in the episode because I, for people who don't listen to the entire episode I want to make sure that we get into this book early and kind of explore it a little bit because I feel strongly. I know Sheikh Amr is a teacher of students in his high school, Islamic high school, and he wants to utilize this uh, book in his curriculum as well. So uh, talk to us about how you came to this book, because I think this book is almost a, a manual for a lot of Muslims who are kind of engaging in this, in this kind of dialogue. Yeah, so this originates from my own history 
so I converted to Islam around 15 years ago, alhamdulillah. And I went through a journey because I had this kind of zeal and this passion, this love for sharing things that I loved. And in that case, in this case, it was Islam. I would pick up anything to try to articulate a compassionate and intelligent case for Islam to the world. Obviously, due to immaturity and age, I think, and maybe lack of experience, I just was dabbling with everything and sometimes would pick an argument from a Christian philosopher and sometimes would basically trying to make my own arguments up and trying to talk. And you have to understand when I became Muslim in the early noughties, 2002, there was, there wasn't this kind of social media, YouTube, Facebook, the way we have it now. And we didn't have like institutes that, you know, were very popular in teaching the masses about what Islam is about. So I was relatively, relatively alone, if, if you want to call it that. And so I was just, just doing trial and error. And this book essentially is trying to show to people that you don't have to learn things the hard way and that my trial and error and my mistakes and my, you know, my errors and, and stuff like that, they, you, you, you could find lessons from, from my life and the way I've developed ideas. Um, and essentially what the book is about is articulating a very strong case for the Islamic aqidah, the Islamic intellectual basis, if you like. You know, it talks about God's existence. It talks about the proof of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. It talks about even the miracle of the Qur'an, the linguistic miracle of the Qur'an and how to articulate it to a non-Arab audience without requiring any knowledge of the Arabic language. And I refer to things like the inference of the best explanation, the concept of testimony, which is a foundational and valid source of knowledge. And this is well known even in Western epistemology. So, I, and, 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 and for me, the most the the most uh, the most important chapter is why Allah deserves worship because you know you know you could prove that the creator exists until the cows come home but if you don't you don't show people that there is a necessary spiritual existential intellectual link between the affirmation that there is a creator for the entire universe and everything that exists and that that creator now deserves worship which means to know God to love God to obey God and to direct all acts of worship to Him alone then, you know, if you don't show that link, then frankly, you were doing a bad job. Right. And you had uh, direct direct experience with this. I remember watching a video of yours where you were kind of talking about your early years and how you arrived at Islam. And you did, you did all the groundwork, right? You came, uh, you came to the intellectual belief in a creator before you accepted Islam because I remember you were talking about having so much difficulty in accepting Islam even after um, coming to the belief in the creator like you, you knew that the creator existed but you just couldn't really like there was like another component that was missing right yeah yeah, yeah I remember you mentioning inside of the book you said that uh, you were intellectually uh, uh, confident but your heart felt dead or something like that yeah, that, that was exactly it. So, look, what we have to understand is this. The human being is not a functional computerized model, okay? We're not just intellectual beings. We're not just a mind and a brain. There is more to us. We, we have a fitrah. We have a ruh. 
we have an innate disposition we have a soul you know we have you know a, we have the spiritual component and it's very important that we see the human being as the human being but sometimes when we try to articulate things or we try to articulate islam to other people we see the human being as an abstract uh, functional computerized model that you give them some kind of rational algorithm and we think all of a sudden that's going to basically you know give them iman I mean, this is wrong, absolutely wrong. And it goes against all of our tradition about what the concept of guidance is and who guides, right? And, and it goes against the concept of what the human being is and what the role of reason is in our tradition. So it's very important to understand that I think one of the reasons why I was going through this mess was because I was approaching the religion of people came to me to approach Islam. And they, when they tried to articulate Islam to me, they wanted to say to me, hey, look, he's proof of God, he's proof of the Prophet, he's proof of the Quran, now you must become a Muslim. Well, not really. Many people already know, they know that smoking is bad for them, but they still smoke. Many people know what good food is, but they still eat rubbish food. They know, for example, how to bring up great kids. If you were to write things down, right? You know, any parent could write how to be a good parent, you know, down. And I, and I know this from my experience. I have children, but are we the best parents all the time? No. So the human beings always have this kind of gap between what they know in an abstract sense and who they are and their state mm. of being. And the problem is that sometimes we think if you give people abstract knowledge about here's the creator, here's the prophet, here's proof of the Quran, then all of a sudden that's going to change their state of being. That's not the case. And we see this in every reality. We have, we have people who, you know, medics who deal with cancer. And they, some of them smoke, right? And they know smoking causes cancer. You know, they have all the physical facts on smoking and cancer, and yet it doesn't change their state of being. So, and we have to be very careful. So what I'm trying to say here is I was approaching Islam or Islam was approached to me. It was given to me by others in a very abstract intellectual way. It was enough maybe to convince my mind in an abstract, functional, computerized, algorithmic, algorithmic way, if you like. But it wasn't enough to settle in my heart, which was the most important thing, mm. and for it to resonate and for me to internalize that. And that was the problem because I think many people who, who articulate Islam to the wider community, you know, to our brothers and sisters in humanity, they do so in a very kind of abstract way. And they forget what our tradition teaches about what the human being is. Now, as you know, the human being has an innate disposition. This is known in our, in our tradition. It's called the fitrah, coming from the triliteral stem. So you have words like fatron and fatrahu, like something has been created within us to acknowledge Allah and to praise Him. So there's right. a form of primary knowledge, proto-knowledge contained within us. It's already there. It's the, it's the fact that we acknowledge Allah and that, you know, there's a kind of capacity or an affinity or the fact that Allah deserves praise. Now, what happens to the fitrah, according to the hadith in Sahih Muslim, as you know, every child is born in a state of fitrah, but his parents change him, etc. There's a socialization effect, there's, you know, things that cloud the fitrah. So the fitrah can get clouded because of sin, because of negative experiences, because of wrong knowledge, because of parenting, because of the societal effects, whatever the case may be. Our job is to help people uncloud the fitrah so we can awaken or they can awaken the truth within them because the truth exists in every single human being every single human being right but the the, the problem is nowadays we're fee we're experiencing um challenges that are being brought forward to young muslims i know like i'm a father of of a couple teenagers and 
they're being challenged with, you know, all kinds of philosophical questions. And their their fitra had no problems in terms of their, their belief in the creator. But when they're experiencing questions uh, in on the academic level or just among peers, they're they're finding themselves stumped. And I know like you talked about when you were arriving at Islam at a with a strictly intellectual level, myself and Sheikh Amir, when we were growing up, we our first experiences with um with Islamic movements were, you know, just like that. We, we were literally the the first chapter. What we learned was uh, the what's called the way to believe. Like you have to go through uh, understanding man, life, the universe, and everything around you, and then you come to the belief in the Creator. And it was a very logical progression. And at the time, I was like, "Oh, this is fantastic!" And then, and as as time moved on, and and we went off into learning other Islamic uh, schools of thought, we we're like, "Oh, well, that was kind of unnecessary, and you know that that's not really required." But then, um, you know, over the past few years, as the um, rhetoric from the neo-atheism crowd has kind of ramped up you, you kind of went back to those days and you're like wait yeah. did these guys were onto something oh yeah because when you look at the a lot of the the founders of the movements they were dealing with things that uh were really yeah. communism related Socialism, right communism yeah yeah they, they were struggling with um how to answer uh the, the communi- wave, the, 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 the yeah the, the red yeah. wave that was kind of taking over the muslim world and I think that they were onto something. I think we need to tweak their message a little bit and kind of structure it a little bit for this uh, uh, th- look, this day. What do you think about that? What's important to understand is no one is belittling reason now. Yeah? What we're saying is if you understand this is the human being as the human being has been created with the fitrah, it can get clouded. Then how do you uncloud the fitrah? So good sound arguments, reason can uncloud the fitrah for sure. But this model shows us that reason doesn't become an end. It's a means to awaken the truth within. Hmm. And you find Allah, through his wisdom and mercy, will not allow you to use reason for, uh, to, uh, to articulate a rational argument to someone. And that would actually uncloud the fitrah. You know what may work? It may be just getting them direct access to revelation. They read the Quran and that could just uncloud the fitrah. How many people have we doing that? That they've only become Muslim, not because of some kind of abstract philosophical argumentation, because they've had a direct existential connection with the book of Allah subhanahu meaning. So, and this is important. So that was the means that awakened the truth within for that particular person. It might not even be that. It might be negative experiences. It might be positive experiences. It might be spiritual experiences. It might be just thinking, right? How many times does Allah give us question, but doesn't give us the, the answer, right? It's implied doesn't give us the direct answer. It's as if Allah is saying to us, if you ask these questions, you know, and you have a sincere heart, it would inevitably lead to the right answers. Mm. Take for example, the questions about the creator of the heavens and the earth. Did you come from nothing? Did you create yourself? Did you create the heavens and the earth? Indeed, you have no firm belief. Allah doesn't even say, therefore, a creator exists. He's giving us questions, getting us to think. And if you learn how to think, and many people don't know how to think, unfortunately, if you learn how to think properly, it would inevitably lead to right answer. So you're right. There is a place for rational discourse and discussion. But how far do you go? And do you, and do you start with that foundationally? I find it a huge problem to, you know, as Al-Ghazali, look at al He was the 11th century religion. Look at his journey. You know, his life needs to be 
magnified for us in the because if you look at his history concerning philosophy and then his kind of existential experiences, maybe towards the middle to later part of his life, you know, he made it very clear that if you rely, if your iman, yeah, your your spiritual conviction, yeah, is contingent upon some kind of deductive argument with a set of premises and a conclusion, then if someone smarter than you comes along and tweaks some of your premises, right? What are you gonna do? You know, you know, what are you gonna do? So his view was that, you know, yes, this is a necessary medicine for those people who are already intellectually sick, but you don't give this to everybody who are already sound. And, and that was his view on what you call ilm uh, al you know, no, no, and, 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 and he understood that it had a place, but it had a place for specific people. You don't give it to someone who's, who's healthy. Like you don't give medicine to people who are already healthy. So, and that's why I said you shouldn't start with this foundationally. It, it, cre- it can create a problem. Um, because what you do is you highlight and you focus on the abstract rational, rationalizations. And then, you know, what really counts, which is the connection with Allah and understanding that he deserves worship and that existential experience being there and being very real for them. If that's not there, then, then, you know, when a question does come, they're going to have doubts. I mean, look, let's be very real. Yeah. Can we answer all the questions? Can Hamza Dodis answer all the questions? Absolutely not. Can you answer all the questions, Sheikh? Absolutely not. Exactly. I'm not going to put words in your mouth, but you see my point. Of course. So, you know, what are we expecting here? Are we expecting someone to know all the answers to all the questions or even to know all the philosophies? And I'm going to be very honest with you. The books that we started with, like The Way to Believe, they would be considered in, from a postgraduate philosophical perspective, shallow now, right? Right. Even though they were studied. I'm going to be very honest. They would be seen as shallow. You tweak a few presuppositions and then the whole thing's fallen. It's just, it drops on the floor, all the whole argument. I'm not saying we don't have strong arguments. We do have very strong arguments, just like I mentioned in the book. But we have to start with the right first principles because everything has a metaphysical first principle. You can't run away with starting with something that you cannot prove. This is almost very basic in philosophy, right? You pick anything. Even we have to assume how, you know, how we understand reason, how we understand rationality. We have to assume even the very fact that this external world is external to our minds, for example. Let me, let me give you, look, everything has first principles or, or assumptions or necessary assumptions that are required in order for that sphere of knowledge to grow. For example, science. Science has a presupposition of nature is uniform. If you don't have that presupposition, you cannot have any science. And you need it before you do any science. Science cannot prove it, right? Right. For example, here's a crude example. You know, we've observed gravity in 50% of the universe, right? If we assume nature is uniform, therefore... Gravity pervades the whole universe. Very simple, right? And that's how science works. Uh, science also works with the presupposition or the first principle of causality, that you need to believe in external causal connections, okay? Generally speaking, although there is a movement that some people just say, no, just, just focus on what the data gives you, then you can even deny, you know, truths like causality. But that's neither here or there. Let's take the, the mainstream. You need to understand that there are external causal connections in the world, that there are causes and there are effects, this cannot be proven scientifically. You need to start with it as an assumption. Now, I'm not saying, you know, causes can't be proven or effects can't be proven because they could be observed in some way. I'm talking about the causal link. What The causal link between the so-called cause and the effect. How do you prove that? You can't. This is, this, 
you have to stop using science and go into metaphysics and philosophy and start to delve into the kind of quagmire of, of doubt and discussion concerning what on earth is causality. And by the way, you know, in metaphysics, they haven't really solved the problem. What is a cause and what's the causal link, for example? Yeah, there's still debates about this. Right. So the, the point here is you need to have that as a first principle. Even neuroscience has a first principle, for example. The neuroscience, generally most neuroscientists and neuroscience itself rests on a non-scientific principle, non-scientific first principle, non-scientific philosophical assumption, which is the assumption of physicalism. What is physicalism? Physicalism is the view or the philosophical approach that all phenomena can be reduced to physical processes, but not necessarily little bits of matter. So the point here is they have to assume that because when they start saying, look, we found consciousness in the brain, they haven't really found consciousness in the brain because neuroscience is a science of correlations. They've seen, you know, something happening, you know, someone's reporting a, in a subjective conscious state and then they see something happening in the brain, some neurochemicals firing like, oh, there you go. We found consciousness. No, you haven't. You only found it if your assumption is true. What's the assumption? That what's happening in the brain is identical to your inner subjective conscious experiences. And that you can't prove. You can't prove they're identical in any way. You, that's a philosophical discussion. And that's where you have different approaches to physicalism. You have reductive materialism. By the way, materialism and physicalism is used synonymously in the philosophy of the mind. So you have reductive materialism. You have functionalism. You have emergent materialism. The hard version. The soft version. Anyway, that's, I don't want to yeah. bore people. The point here is the point here is everything has first principles. Let me give you another first principle. In politics, in the concept of freedom, I did a specialist module for my postgrad called The Idea of Freedom. And we're talking about what is freedom. So there is a consensus amongst philosophers that freedom is not instrumental. It is not a means to an end, right? Rather, it is intrinsically valuable. So I raised a silly question. I said, well, how do you know? I said, well, if it's intrinsically valuable, you, the proof is not required. So I just changed my question. I said, well, how do you ground that? And he responded, the academic responded by saying, it's our intuitions. It's our philosophical intuitions. Nice. Wow. <laughs> so he said, that's all we have. Listen to me, brothers and sisters, whoever's listening to this. Don't be duped by clever things on Google, YouTube and stuff. Everything has first principles and you could reduce a hell of a lot of philosophy on what you call intuitions. So when we talk about the fitrah, we have an innate disposition with the belief that Allah is a reality and that he deserves praise. Then don't think that's some kind of hocus pocus made up stuff. It's what you call a necessary first principle that is required to understand who you are as a human being. And to understand the whole world. Now, if you take other first principles, a lot of them are incoherent. They they have to inevitably make you deny who you are as a human being. But we could discuss that a bit later. So the point I was trying to make here is everything has first principles. And the Islamic first principle, if you want to call it that, is the concept of the fitra. We have, we are human beings. And we have a fitra that is created by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. As forms of primary knowledge or proto knowledge. Ulama talk about two, but they also talk about three, but there's a bit of ikhtilaf on the third. The first is that they already acknowledge some kind of prior causal connections, prior creative activity, a creator for the heavens and the The other one is that Allah deserves praise, or this creator deserves some form of praise. Okay? And it's quite interesting that we praise people all the time by virtue of their attributes, even though their attributes are limited and deficient which is very interesting. You know, you're talking about Anthony Joshua, the boxer. 
just before we went live. And you know, hopefully we might talk about that in, in, in a few minutes. But, you know, when you see his sporting skill, his boxing skill, you're like, wow, that was amazing. Why? Why are you praising him? He's not benefiting you in any way, but you're praising him by virtue of his sporting attributes, right? Yeah. Although his sporting attributes are limited and deficient, right? And what does that mean about how we must praise Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, whose names and attributes are not limited and not deficient and they're perfect? Anyway, the point here is, so, you know, we have an affinity to praise the creator. The third one is a form of potent knowledge is basic moral truths. Basic moral truths. Not all moral knowledge, but basic moral truths. Like stealing is killing. So if the fitra contains these things, and that becomes clouded as per the hadith of the Prophet as we mentioned previously, that can be found in Sahih Muslim, then our job now is to uncloud the fitra. So when you engage in intellectual discourse, right? Know that there is a limit to this kind of intellectual gymnastics. There is only so far you can go when you split the intellectual hair. I remember I was speaking to someone. I gave him a really good argument for God's existence, right? You know, I, I, I just really love what I call the Quranic argument for God's existence. It's the one that he mentioned in the book. It's based on chapter 52, verse 35 to 36. So the logic of the verses are, are basically extracted and applied uh, into the universe, right? Anyway, so I gave him that argument, and then he responds with something that doesn't really undermine, in essence, you know, the fact that a creator exists. And he replied by saying, well, what was God doing for eternity before he created the universe? Now, for me, we need to become more intellectually and spiritually mature and understand that question doesn't require an answer. That question does not what? Doesn't require an answer. Doesn't require an answer, of course, yes. Yeah, I tell you why, because it's a karina, it's an indicator for a psycho, social, spiritual issue that the person has. Exactly. Because why is that person raising the epistemic bar when it just comes to God? But for everything else in their life, everything, marriage, uh, finances, banking, education, studies, everything else that they do, even if they claim to be a scientist, even, the, the, even what they consider as a well-confirmed theory, right? Everything that they do in their in their life, in every sphere of their life, academic, non-academic, social, whatever the case may be, the epistemic bar is on a certain level. But only for God, and only for God, right? Only for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The epistemic bar is like way up there. So my question is, why the inconsistency? Why the gap? Why does that happen? Because there is something else that's going on. Don't assume that human beings are just functional computerized robots. We're not. There is an existential component there. There is a psychological component there. And that's why, you know, I, I really respect David Hume. Because when he talked about morality, he basically said, we, there's no rationality in morality. We just use reason to justify whatever, you know, uh, our kind of our moral inclinations, our emotions. That's what we do. The basis for rationality, the basis for morality is not rationality. Rather, it's like the other way around. We, we're already, we're emotional. And we, we have emotional connections to so-called moral truths and we just rationalize them. Right? Mm. And, 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 this, and you could extend that thesis to things like this. You know, Some people don't like the idea of God. They're not really atheists. They're closet misotheists. They hate God. You know, Others, they've had very dark experiences when it, when it comes to religion. Maybe they need a Muslim just to buy him a pizza for God's sake. But we're talking about cosmological arguments and all this person wants is a Muslim to just say, you know what? Let's connect. Like, wallahi, brothers, yeah, and Sheikh, do apologize. Um, uh, we have to understand that, you know, there is so much more than just 
you know, intellectual arguments. Because I'm going to be very honest with you. And this is, this is, this is, this is, this is, this is my, what I would call maybe my, maybe progress is not a very good word to use, but I hope you understand what I'm saying. If tomorrow something comes up, right, and there's a philosophical argument I don't understand, and like the majority of the philosophers say, that's it, God's existence is impossible. Inshallah, and, and you know, I don't want Allah to test me with my words, but that's not going to bother me. Why, why would that bother me? That would only bother me if I believe my iman is contingent on some kind of abstract deductive argument, for example. Yes. My iman now is contingent on, you know, my state of being, my heart, my connection with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. How many times have I spoken to a, 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 an apostate? And I gave, gave them an amazing argument. But in the process of me giving them the amazing argument, I didn't even like the argument and I was in doubt about the same thing he was in doubt about. And yet that person came back to Islam and I was still wondering in doubt. And I was thinking to myself, what is wrong with you, Hamza? It's like there are 50 people in one. Wow. Hmm. Looking at myself thinking, why is that the case? Why are you Hamza here and Hamza there? You, there's Hamza number one over here. There's Hamza number two over here. Every couple of hours you become someone different. What is going on with you? And I'm going to be very honest with you. It was because... I was not connected to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I lacked in my salah in terms of the way I was praying. I lacked in my God, my remembrance of Allah. And this just brings back the ayin. Allah says, if you forget Allah, Allah will make you forget yourself. Yeah. Our, our identity, internal identity, is contingent on our relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not belittling reason here, reason here. Allah says, you know, He gives us the conclusive argument. Absolutely. But the point I need to uh, make everyone realize, inshallah, is that we're not just functional computerized robots. There's so much more to us than that. And reason basically is a means to awaken, to uncloud the fitrah, to awaken the truth within. And every single Muslim, their job, when they speak to their Muslim friends, family, colleagues, etc., is to compassionately and intelligently try to help uncloud that person's fitrah. And if that Muslim is, is intellectually and spiritually mature, they would realize sometimes they don't have to answer the questions and that all they do is they plant seeds in people's hearts and minds and hopefully will grow into the fruits of faith, the fruits of iman. And at sometimes, from your experiences, it may mean that you need to deal with an intellectual argument. Of course, it has its, it has its arena, absolutely. But many cases, and I would, may, I would even say maybe 80% of the cases, is that these people, they just want to know, you know, how do I connect? They want to know how, you know, what, you know how, can I, how can I feel good about religion? How can I feel good about Islam? How can I feel good about the concept of God? How can I feel, you know, how, how can I see something positive in, 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 in this way of life that seemingly gives you certainty? spiritual intellectual certainty how do i you know engage with that and sometimes it could be your behavior honestly it could be yeah <laughs> it could just be i know this sounds like oh you know cliche it's the uncle's cliche in the masjid right <laughs> just be right and it's true it can become a cliche but generally speaking if we use the tools that we have at our disposal and we understand the human being as the human being with this fitra then we may have to combine a little bit of reason a little bit of connection a little bit of getting people to think, you know, sometimes just saying, I don't know, 
why? You know, it would be so powerful to say, I don't know. Yeah. You know, if you don't say, I don't know, that could be a means for someone, for someone's guidance, honestly. And you know what? And when we look at the tradition of the Prophet ﷺ, we saw so many people, you know, become Muslim, not because of what you would call deductive arguments, but a lot of them were existential arguments. They were spiritual, you know. Some just wanted to see the character of the Prophet ﷺ, the famous hadith where the Jewish man pulled the Prophet ﷺ by the neck because he owed him some money. And the person's reaction was a reaction of hell. Allah is al-halim and we must have a sense of forbearance. You know, he's the forbearing and we must be forbearing from a human-centric point of view. And the Prophet was the most forbearing. He would respond to anything by that which is better. As Allah says in the Quran, repel by that which is better. Now, what's interesting, the Arabic word repel is not followed by a direct object. So it's not saying repelling evil. It says repel by that which is better. The ulama say repel anything by that which is more virtuous and that which is more beautiful. And that was the character of the Prophet ﷺ. And this Jewish man, he, he was waiting for the final sign. He had one more sign that, that he was looking for, which was a sign of prophethood. And one of them, and, and the final one that he was looking for was the fact that the Prophet ﷺ would be forbearing. He would respond to evil, respond to anything by that which is virtuous and that which is beautiful. Sometimes if we internalize right that character, we become our state of being is that, then I'm telling you, it can change so many people's lives. And, and, and it could awaken the truth within. Because look, at the end of the day, Allah guides. Right? right. It's not your rational algorithm. You could prove anything. You could, you know, you could, you could come up with a deductive argument that necessarily proves everything, right? Everything that you want <laughs> it to prove. God's existence, here you go. Here's a deductive argument. The truth of the Prophet, here's a deductive argument. You know, all of these things, no problem. But is that going to lead to Iman? No. And that, is that the only way that can lead to Iman? Of course not. The very fact that guidance is, is from Allah alone, the very fact that it's from Allah alone teaches us what? That we need to be humble in the way we think that we're going to convey the call to, to human beings, right? Yeah. Because Allah, by definition, right? He even talks about himself. He's Al-Hakim. He, he has the totality of wisdom. He's Al-Alim. He has total knowledge. Right? So if Allah has the totality of wisdom and knowledge, He has the picture, we just have the pixel. We have a pixelated, if that, we have a pixelated understanding of, of, of reality. Right. So from that point of view, why do you think, this is it, I've got the argument, it's going to really, you know, you know, it, you know, convince everybody. That's not the case. You know? It just we shows need our ignorance of human beings, you know. Yeah, we hear me. So, sorry for waffling on this. No, 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 no. no. It's, it's actually really important. I, I really, uh, it got me thinking when you're talking about like first proofs. And I was thinking about was like, thinking just, about that too right now. <laughs> yeah, you, you know how like human beings, why, why do we, why are we built with a way to, um, you know, with an inclination to, tell the truth we we don't want to lie it, no one ever teaches that to anyone it's not it's not something that's conditioned you know we have um i mean not just that and then i was thinking about other things like um how, why the universe is inclined towards order or order and rather mm -hmm. than chaos why isn't that is, is that a first proof as well uh, brother hamza uh that the universe that the universe is inclined towards order rather than chaos is that a first proof, or well, if you if you mean is that a first principle? I said, well, oh, I'm sorry, yeah, yeah first, first principle. principle I, yeah. I I misspoke. Sorry. Well, maybe, well, 
I would say a first principle is that we have an assumption that we have rational minds and that there's a rational universe. That is very interesting because if you don't have that assumption, then you can't understand anything. Wait, sorry, can you repeat that one more time? You said that the our first principle would be that we have... So a first principle in this context would be that we have rational minds that can unlock the key to this rational universe. Mm, I see what you're saying. Very. We didn't have the assumption that we can eventually come to the truth via our reason and that we and if we didn't have the assumption that we can potentially understand the universe then nothing would really make sense of course i see it the the universe could not be rationalized then what conclusions could you make and if our minds could not be rational or could not come to the truth or to a truth via the use of reason then Anything we say would be incoherent. <laughs> that's the wow, whole point. Deep, and this, for science itself, for philosophy itself, you have to start with that first principle. Although I did a specialist module for my postgrad called The Philosophy of Psychology. And uh, one of the sessions that we we're going through was trying to show that human beings are irrational, <laughs> that there is no rationality. It was more of a kind of, I think, a Darwinian, what I remember clearly, a Darwinian kind of perspective on truth i almost see that that just that i mean i'm i'm speaking uh, uh, on you know a very uh on a simple level but for a human being to prove that he's irrational is almost like an oxymoron to me right because he by default has this programming to rationalize every time he hears something and to try to disprove that he's he's rational is actually like well, a, yeah, what right. they, what, they, what they'll have to do is is not try to prove that they're irrational because that <laughs> would, uh, yeah, they say there is no truth. I'm like, well, are you sure? Because your statement must be true, right? Because you said there is no truth. Is that statement true? <laughs> that's, that's the case. Then your statement is not true, right? It's like a contradiction. It's self-defeating. It's beautiful. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I, I know that's. That's a crude takedown of skepticism, but I I think you get the point. So, of course. Uh, so yes. So that person would mainly just have to suggest, not prove anything. They'd be like, you know what? I I really fundamentally at the end don't really believe that we are rational anyway. Hmm. And then you, and then they could just live their lives in an emotional or existential way, if that makes sense. But anyway, the point here is, um, and that's why. Look, why is it? And we need to be very clear about this, brothers and, and sheikh. Why is it that? The majority of the Quran doesn't really focus on these proofs in that way. Although, you know, I tried to make the book, you know, I think 50% of my book has a Quran, Hadith, or Statement of a Scholar. So I, I made sure that everything was grounded in our tradition as best as possible, even if it's a Statement of a Scholar or comes from a verse. Because I think it's very important for the things that we, you know, yeah. the arguments we adopt have to be grounded in our tradition. Right. Okay? So... Anyway, the point here is, um, why is it the Quran focuses on worship? Let's be honest. Every time Allah talks about the creative, His creative power, go to any chapter. Allah gives us almost, you know, you know, if you think about these premises, have you not seen this? Have you not seen that? And then you see a conclusion somewhere. Therefore, He is one. Therefore, He deserves worship. Therefore, of course, you know, yeah. Allah is the one that deserves our, you know, our love, obedience. Um, and he deserves yeah. the fact that we, we should get to know him uh, and the fact that all praise should be and gratitude belongs to him alone. You know, the, these these are the fundamental, this is the fundamental spiritual existential logic in the book of Allah. It moves from you using your senses to understand the outside world and the inner world, your world, and 
if you have a sound heart and a sound mind and you're sincere, that would inevitably lead to the conclusion that Allah deserves worship, which means to know Allah, to love Allah, to obey Allah, and to direct all internal and external acts of worship to Allah alone. Why is the Quran? Why does the Quran just focus on the concept of worship? Because Allah says, if you ask the Quraysh, if you ask the Arabs, who created the heavens and the earth, they will say it's Allah, right? Mm-hmm. So they had that first principle there already about creation, right? From the point of view that, you know, who's the creator, who's the Rabb from that point of view. Um, but the main problem was, you know, well, how do, you know, how do we show that Allah deserves worship? And for me, I think it's very important for us to stop being on the intellectual back foot. So what? Let people give you a thousand contentions against this, that and the other. Big deal. Change the narrative. Have a very positive, um, you know, articulation of Islam. See, look. Islam is very simple. Islam says every human being worships. Many of them have misdirected worship. We're just merely showing you who deserves worship. Because if you think about it, at any point in someone's life, whether they're an atheist, whether they're Muslim, whether they're Christian, whether they're skeptic, you could whoever they are, at any point in someone's life, they're always ultimately wanting to know something the most. At any point in someone's life, they're, almost, they're always ultimately loving something the most. At any point in someone's life, at some point, they're always obeying or referring to something the most. And at any point in life, they're always being grateful to something the most from an ultimate point of view. So, you know, if I if you ask anyone a question, right, if I ask you, Mr. John Doe or Joe Bloggs, whatever the case may be, you know, what is the thing that you are knowing, you are trying to know the most at this present time? They will give me an answer. Well, if it's nothing, I say, what about last week? What about last month? They'll give me an answer. And if I say to them, what is the thing that you're loving most, ultimately? They'll give me an answer. If I say to them, what's the thing that you're obeying or you're referring to the most? They'll give me an answer. You know, if I, and if I ask them, ultimately, what do you refer to the most? What do you obey the most? And if I ask them, you know, what are you ultimately grateful to the most? They'll give me an answer. Now, that answer is the object of worship. So everybody's worshiping by default. Our job is merely to intelligently and compassionately show people that Allah deserves our worship. Mm. And that's the point. Beautiful. Um, and, yet, and yet we don't do that. And this is based on the Quran. Allah says in chapter 39, verse 29, and I'm paraphrasing, consider the situation of two people. One man is a slave to many masters and they're all quarreling. Another man is a slave to one master. Hmm. Whose condition's best? Whose condition's best? That's the point. And if you think about it, if you're not worshipping Allah, you're worshipping something else. He reminds me of the poetry of Iqbal, and I mentioned this in the book, when he says, this one prostration that you find so difficult frees you from a thousand prostrations. You know? Hmm. Because if you're not worshipping Allah, you're worshipping. Take take nationalism, for example, right? Or even other ideologies, right? Other isms and schisms. You know, you'll have people who, you know, they're, they're so nationalistic. That's all they want to know about their country and their state and their history and their genetic pool. You know, you get these right wing. Well, I'm not saying everyone right wing is bad. I'm not saying that. I don't want to otherize. You know, why? just for ease of language, the extreme right wing, right? The extreme right wing nationalists, they're like, you know, it's all about state and country and, you know, I just want to know everything about my forefathers, right? So they want to know their nation the most. 
then they love the nation the most. The proof is they would die for the flag, right? You touch the flag, you abuse the flag, you say anything bad about my country and my nation and my people, then it's game over. It's all out war. I'm going to annihilate you. I know this is very crude, but I think you're getting the point, yeah? Oh, yeah. Yeah. The, yeah, the next point is uh, they obey and they refer. So the, the people that represent their nation state, they see them almost as godly. You know, they can't be wrong, right? If he says fake news, then it's fake news, right? <laughs> that kind of, right? So they refer and obey um, their leaders who represent their movement or their attitudes to life or their attitudes to the, their attitudes to the state. The next point is they show gratitude, ultimate gratitude. They believe that all praise and thanks belongs to the mother nation, the state. I'll be nothing without my state, without my genetic pool, without my forefathers, without this, that, and the other. That's their object of worship. And unfortunately, some Muslims fall for that object of worship all the time. You know, and that is a big problem in our community as well. You know, you had some kind of, you had people, colonists, who basically raped and pillaged lands. And then they decided to draw lines on a map. And sometimes they weren't even creative. They drew a straight line. Yeah, look at Africa. Look yeah. at Egypt. You know, these, these are straight lines, man. <laughs> straight and lines, we, yeah. We define ourselves by those lines. <laughs> exactly. I mean, come on, man. <laughs> if that is not stupidity, then I don't know what stupidity is. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't you think that I'm just like gunning down communities. No, I, I'm British. I love to be British, right? Because I think there is a sense of a collective feel of what it means to be British, generally speaking. You're brought up in an education system. There are some sports that you're more you know, affiliated towards. There are some characteristics that you might have, you know, I'll, I'll call it a, a a tinge of your character. You could tell that this guy is from Britain. Like when I go to, when I used to go to America, when I used to make my jokes, they're like, I know this guy's British because he's got British jokes. Or even our sense of, you know, you know, appreciating the other, you know, it's a very a, a British thing, generally speaking. So, you know, this sense of, um, of, of, you know, gentleman manners is still very British and stuff like that. So don't get me wrong. It's, it's important to have respect and a kind of affiliation and love for the people that you live with directly, right? From that point of view. But now to, now, but to be nationalistic, that's a different issue. That's like ridiculous. Right? Yeah. Uh, anyway, so that was as an example. Yeah. So and people take nationalism, and that could be the object of worship, unfortunately, um, because if that's the thing that they want to know the most ultimately and they want to they love the most ultimately and they obey the most ultimately and they direct all acts of worship, which in this case, gratitude towards the most ultimately, then that's their object of worship. And so I, th if, I, I, if, I think if you understand that people, how they worship, they're actually worshiping something that teaches you. Uh, the the uh, how to be like Rasulullah how so is he understood the reason why he had so much mercy even with his enemies is that he saw them worshipping something and he knew that they had that tendency it just had to be directed he knew that everyone was a potential right and he saw everybody worshipping he just knew he just knew he had to try his best to direct that worship to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala right so even even with that, just that understanding that people are always worshiping something regardless, that gives you a different type of hope and a, a type of mercy towards people, that uh, you can direct uh, their their inclinations to the ultimate worship. And, of course. And, and you know, there's, there's something beautiful that you mentioned about you know just belonging to a nation. That that's something very very natural. Us as human beings, we're social 
beings and we have to have certain things around us that 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 that, that pacify us and that quench our thirst just to be a human being yes. and amongst that is belonging when you belong somewhere people and the reason why i'm bringing this back up is people blur the lines they think that hey i'm proud to be british i'm proud to be this they think you're being nationalistic which you're not of course not right yeah. you're I'm, you're you're he, actually exercising he, your humanness of okay. having to belong somewhere but where it becomes a problem is that you believe that your blood is valuable in somebody else's because of a, a geographic location. That's where it becomes problematic, right? Yeah, and based yeah. on certain principles. And a lot of Muslims need to grow up, frankly. I mean, the minute you say, I love my country, they're like, oh my God. They just throw all the terms at you. Like, come on, man. All at once? I mean, if you study the lives of the Sahaba, like if you were to even be bothered yeah. to move away from your Nasheed artists, and your, you know, so-called uh, favorite speakers on YouTube, yeah, which even includes me. I think we have a very crazy celebrity culture at the moment, yeah. You know, if you were even bothered to, you know, insert yourself into our tradition and immerse yourself in our tradition, you see that, you know, the Sahaba were human. Yeah. <laughs> they were, and they they had tribal affiliations, but it just it just wasn't to the level of 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 of, of what you call asabiya or nationalism, right? Um, and and Islam was always the kind of the 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 ethical worldview and the and the metaphysical and moral and spiritual worldview. So that that was that was the case. So you're right. Look, and this links to the fact that if you, if you understand the fitra properly, then you you see every human being as aslan, foundationally good. Yes. That's very powerful. Yep. Because this changes. This is a metaphysic now. It changes the way you see reality. Because metaphysics is, is first principles. Really, it's the lenses you put on your eyes in order to see and understand the world. And how to understand the world and how to understand all these connections. So if you have this fitra, then you see every human being as a potential Muslim and you see every human being as foundationally good. Yeah. And that is very, very powerful. And, you, and you, it would help you not to otherize because I think some Muslims have gone way too far in their kind of love and hate for the sake of Allah. I think they've, they've blurred the boundaries. They've, they don't have boundaries or they've basically become ideologically pathological yeah and it's a it's a hardness of the heart yeah because you know we you know allah says in the quran we have to be very nerds with our tradition allah says in the quran surah al-imran verse 113 people are not the same if you go to the mufassirin and 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 you see the discussion on on this ayah allah is talking about there are people outside of the islamic tradition outside of being muslim that are upright and just this really teaches us something. It teaches us that, yes, we do have categories of, you have the Munafiqin, you have the Kufar, you have the, the, the Muslims. We have these categories for sure. But Allah is teaching us not to otherize. Because otherization is not merely categorizing people. Otherization is saying that there is a category of people and every single one of those people, all those persons in that group, you know, is evil or is, or, or, you know, they, they have a negative evil thing about them, right? That is not the Islamic tradition because Allah is telling us people are not the same. Mm. So you have a general categorizations in the Quran. Allah is specifying, however, people are not the same. And we see this in the interaction of the Prophet Wasallam. When you have the Jewish boy who was on his sickbed and the Prophet was asking him to, you know, affirm the reality that there is no deity worthy of worship but the deity but Allah 
right? And that Muhammad is his final messenger. You know, the, the, the Jewish boy looked to his son, looked to his father. And his father said, listen to Abu Qasim. He referred to the Prophet by his kunya, like his nickname, if you like. Now, if you understand the Arab culture of that time, to do that, you must have a friendly connection with somebody. Yep. Yeah. Now, the Prophet who he, his, some of his sahaba were very rich, but he would, he would, he would, he would basically get a loan from a Jewish person. <laughs> what does that mean? What does that mean? I mean, analyze from a psychological point of view. Like, you know, if I want to get a loan from someone, I'm not going to ask someone that I hate, right? I'm not going to ask someone that I think is scum. Despite, I'm not going to ask yeah. someone that I don't trust, especially when you understand that, you know, every loan is, a, is like a form of sadaqah, yeah? I will ask someone who, you know, is my boy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the point I'm trying to say is we need to see things from a human actually forget not even from a human point of view we need to see things from a god-centric point of view what yes. is what does allah want us to do in this situation and you really yeah go ahead, sorry no even, yeah. even based on that i mean it may be seeming like i'm switching gears but it's kind of related to this i believe one of the best ways to teach if not the best way to teach is you may have as anybody we may have learned certain things along our lives right but we, when we revisit or when we have to teach it to somebody, we wish uh, or we start teaching, I, I should say, uh, in a manner that we wish that we were taught in a certain way, right? And I, I made, that may have sounded a little confusing. I apologize. Let me, let me rephrase that. One of the best and heartfelt ways to teach, I feel, is that you teach people from your experiences of what you wish that someone had told you. And now you've learned it, right? You've let's say somebody's forty years old, and they are teaching people that are anywhere between fifteen to twenty-five years old, and a majority of their teaching takes place based on what they wish that someone had taught them, right? Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, just like a parent would would to exactly like when when I, when my daughters uh, as they're growing older, I try to tell them like, hey, these are like the pitfalls that I experienced exactly. and I, w I want you to and avoid that's a them. mix of reasoning and emotion combined, right? That's right. a mix of emotion and reason combined. And it, that's exactly how I feel your book is kind of like, it's, it's very casual yet very academic at the same time, right? It's very yeah. casual kind of explaining, uh, what kind of what you went through. But at the same time, there's, I can, when you read between the lines, just as soon as I open up in just the first few pages that I was reading, it's as if that, you know, you're you're teaching someone on a very personal level. It's very difficult to do that with a book, right? And, yes, and and that's why I love this book. You know, I mean, the book's not perfect. I'm going for a revised edition at the moment before I do the second edition. Mashallah. Because time, and I've seen so many typos. I'm like, oh my god, yeah. But <laughs> when I found out Harry Potter had a hundred typos, I was so happy. <laughs> <laughs> no, the style, the style, the style is awesome, man, and uh, it's but very you know, human. Look, it's very human. It, well, we're human beings, you know, yeah. and um. Well, I think a, a lot, a lot of the discourse gets that academics try to transmit to lay people gets lost. So it's hmm. very hard and, and, because yeah, I it was one brother once said to me, "This book is not uh, as high academic as it should be." I was like, "Well, it's not an academic book. It's not meant for, uh, for example, PhD students. It was aimed at people at high, late high school to maybe." 
do uh, finishing a, a master's, a postgrad. It was for those people who are more likely to get doubts and concerns about their tradition. But I would um, even disagree with him on that. I would say the vernacular and the language is probably not at that level, but the concepts are are all very very advanced and very simple at the same okay. time. I I I I wanted to basically write a book where I could sit with anyone and argue the concept, the basic concepts. Exactly. I, I could argue to the cows come home on the concepts because I wanted to be, I wanted to be happy with what I wrote. Um, but also, you know, and I even said I can't write everything. There are so many things that you could talk about. Like even in the argument from consciousness, there are things about the fundamental concept strategy and Brian Law's approach and what his answer would be to certain contentions and these things you can't even find online. It's very like because when I did the philosophy of the mind for my postgrad and I did it for my dissertation as well it gets so deep I said you know we could talk about those things but it's irrelevant and those are kind of things that you don't need yeah. and that was my point you know if someone you know doesn't know how to address Brian Law's phenomenal concept strategy to basically undermine non-physicalist accounts of, of, of consciousness then really does that put a hole in your faith I don't think so <laughs> yeah. it probably puts a hole in your understanding of the English language yeah or philosophy <laughs> sure. So, you know, and we need to be, we need to just basically, you know what, we have to go back to basics, really. You yeah. know, I had someone who sent me an email many years ago, and he said, you know, my faith is on the floor because they discovered the Higgs boson. And I'm like, what? <laughs> What's the Higgs boson? I don't even no, know what that is. The Higgs boson was basically particle. the particle that they found. They empirically found the particle that made up the Higgs field. Oh, what was okay, the Higgs okay. Field? Yeah, the Higgs field Higgs, was something. okay, okay. Yeah. Field that was some was something that was turned on in the early universe, and that it gave particles mass apart from the photon, and they found it. And you have all these popular articles and magazines saying they found the God particle. I'm like, okay, well, if you understand why they said that, it had nothing to do with God. In the beginning, it was called the goddamn particle because it was so hard to find, but they removed the damn. <laughs> oh just, wow. Just and and that's the problem we see things on uh, popular magazines and that's why for me it goes to show that we don't really have an intellectual problem Wallahi, I, I don't think we have an intellectual problem generally speaking amongst the lay masses or even amongst students we have a psychological problem and that is we we, we, we look externally right for verification refer, for and affirmation yeah we're going through post-colonial trauma I'm telling you <laughs> exactly I'm, you stole the words out of my mouth yeah post-colonial trauma uh, and I'm not saying look at me I'm the western Greek guy coming from a very sound family coming into the Muslim community analyzing the Muslims and I'm carrying my own revert baggage and but, privilege yeah. well, that's, well maybe that, that's a favorite word or, or term around here in the US yeah. everyone everyone uh, that is not uh, everyone that's basically white is coming from privilege I think that's wrong I think that's that's racist, frankly. Exactly. <laughs> that's what we're, we've been trying to dig into I'm, these I'm, concepts I'm, that are, that have been kind of flourishing in Muslim communities now. Like some people think I'm white and privileged. I'm like, firstly, have you seen my skin tone? I <laughs> you look Pakistani, <laughs> man. <laughs> and, and and coming privilege, privilege, really? I was I was brought up in Hackney in uh, in uh, the 1980s, and you know my family had no food. I, we had to collect you know copper coins. And I had to go to the pharmacy and, and to collect all these coins just to get my mom's sanitary towels. And we had to live for potatoes on weeks. I'm not saying this to make people feel sorry for me. Alhamdulillah, we're yeah. fine now. 
But we went through a very dark period. Uh, you know, uh, my mom was almost killed, right? And, oh. and mugged and, and, you know, she was like strangled. You know, we had all we had. My dad would work maybe four days in a row. SubhanAllah. Yeah. Yeah, man. I mean, th- th- these are these are uh, the ideas that are coming from the left, though. Yeah. Just to yeah. just to create uh, a, a boogeyman, uh, or uh, I think in the UK they say bogeyman, right? <laughs> so um, they they want people to blame, and you you're not a account- they want to take accountability away from you, and I blame it Canada. on. I went to Canada, and yeah. uh, the you know massive uh, kind of Professor Peterson movement, yeah, Jordan Peterson. Right. Right. Uh, I actually like quite a lot of what he says, right? Yeah, he's a cool dude. Cool dude. Not, not everything, but uh, yeah. yeah. And I think he's on his journey, and I have emailed him. I want to have dinner with him, but he was he was busy when I was in Toronto. But he said he'll, he'll catch up with me later this year. That's good. So the, I've yeah, been hoping that, that you talk to him because he, he seems like somebody that you could have a good conversation with. Oh, yeah. Many people judge people on their YouTube clips and on their journey, and they're not even bothered to pick up the phone or the email saying, how are you doing this chat? Uh, you see this with Muslims a lot. Oh, right. that Muslims must be like that. Really? I mean, are you the same person you were two years ago? If you are, then you're, you're a zombie. You've got problems. Yeah? yeah. If you're a being, then, you know, I follow the kind of kind of Bruce Lee model for the human being. Yeah? Be like a river. Yeah. yeah. You know, uh, you don't stand in the same river twice because keep on flowing. And if you don't flow anymore, you stagnate and you become smelly. Keep on flowing and you're fresh and you give other things life. That's, That's what beautiful. Imam Shafi said that. That river, which is quite interesting. I think there's a correlation between Bruce Lee and Imam Shafi. Yes, <laughs> That's just my But anyway, the point I'm trying to say here is people change and they evolve. Um, and that's why it's very important to speak to people, you know, directly. How are you doing? What's your views? What's going on? Speak to me. Let's have, let's connect, you know. And it's very important in the social media age to have the adab. That's this proper adab, yeah? yeah. You know, bypass this kind of rubbish and sound bites. And just to really connect with human beings and say, you know, let's, let's talk. Let's talk. Let's connect with one another. It's very powerful. But yeah, so Professor Jordan Peterson, he's going against the kind of like postmodern Marxist narrative, which is very interesting. And I actually agree with him. Like, you know, I was in Canada and, you know, some you know, social justice warrior, she was like, oh, I believe it to be true because I choose to believe. And that's very interesting. So you're saying the premise of your truth is your mere choice of believing. And that's your metaphysics of truth. That's your first principle. Because your mere choosing to believe makes it true. So, okay, let me give you a thought experiment. I did this in front of the whole class. I said, I believe that I am the king of the world and anything I do is moral regardless of what I do. So I decide to kill you. Is it moral? And is, is my belief that me killing you, is that morally true? Is that a true belief? Do you know what she said? Hmm. She said, said, yes. <laughs> wow. And they're laughing. I said, I'll tell you why you, you've hesitated. You know, she, you could tell she was in a, a state, an emotional state. You've hesitated because you've realized how ridiculous, how ridiculous your first principles are in understanding truth. Because truth is not your mere choice. I, it's true because I believe it, because I choose to believe it. I'm sorry. You just, you know, you, that, that just can't be the case. And a lot of I, I noticed a little bit of that in Canada, unfortunately. Yeah. So how how what is your approach with your kids now? That that I think a lot of our listeners would be curious to know. Like, hey, I'm sure like Hamza Sources' kids are, you know, um, they're just as good as him, or they they, they could the they, that you yeah they place, can yeah. Uh, they, has he transmitted all his knowledge to his uh, his kids and uh, 
what how, how do you what would you recommend other uh, parents in terms of um, what kind of education they should provide to their their kids in in handling a lot of the discourse that's taking place in academia? Oh, that's okay, can that's I answer that for you before well, you answer, sir? First, read yeah. the divine reality. No, right? I, I swear to God, I was going to say that. No, I'll tell you why I was going to say that. And Hamza didn't ask me to say this. It's because it starts off very, very simple on a very human level. And I personally, I'm going to I'm gonna introduce this book, you know, to as many people as I know. But it goes through a step-by-step progression. And any other things that you want to add on to that, you can. You know, it's good to have a good foundation. And after you have a foundation, you could add whatever. I think this is a very, very good foundation. Yeah. Because parents are going to learn the process of teaching their kids now. I'm going to learn the process of teaching my kids yeah. now. Right? Well, And that's the best yeah, way to learn. I got an email from a parent, which, you know. It just makes me cry. And um, he said, if I remember correctly, he said, now I have a book for that to give to my kids before they go university because he was so worried. I'm sorry, brother. Take your time, man. No rush. And the reason I'm choking up because there were far better people than me. We live in a world where, you know, it's so frustrating. People just didn't conjure up the strength to do stuff. And then, you know, people think, you know, Hamza, he's a daddy and stuff. But, you know, deep down, I always think that, you know, Allah says that sometimes he'll promote the religion through the, the Fasik, those who sin. I don't see myself as anything. This is a, an honor. This is not a privilege. If you think you, you Allah needs you, then you're you're already destroyed. This is. I, I can relate to you so much, Hamza, uh, with what you're saying because so I mean I I think about like this podcast that we we started and I'm like and all the headaches it brings and all the all the different responsibilities it brings and and I look at my own faults and all my own weaknesses. I mean. Sheikh Hamer knows me like a, a brother. He knows all my faults and weaknesses. And he knows like, like at, at times I feel like, man, I'm a hypocrite for even doing this because I'm, I'm involved in dawah. I'm involved in spreading Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's word and, and such a huge weight. And at many times I wanted to say, you know what? Let's just call it quits. We're, you know, quit while we're ahead before, you know, uh, b- before I continue on this hypocrisy or something, you know, and, and, you just can't. It's because I think Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala just kind of puts the spark in you. And, and he, he says you. like, like he uses you. yeah, and, and there's no him. way like you can stop. It's because you've, you've kind of been given um, a responsibility and this purpose and you, it's just your job to, to carry out that mission. And, and all these doubts and all these other things that you, you find in yourself and all these flaws that, that we find in ourselves they um they're only there to i mean it, it kind of sounds silly but they they you come to the realization that they're from shaitan you know and that they they they're there to inhibit your progress i mean yeah I mean, my frustration was um that you know not enough was being done 
But you know what? Allah chooses who He chooses. And, you know, alhamdulillah, there's so many bright minds now. Uh, so many people are coming up in the social media sphere and they're writing books. You know, I have a lot of love for Dr. Muhammad Ghilan, for example. Yeah, a yeah, good friend of ours. Yeah, uh, he's brilliant. He's he's top, 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 top guy. Yeah. Um, and Allah bless him and preserve him. You have, for example, um, uh, the Yaqeen Institute, they're writing some interesting stuff as well. Yeah. You have, you have Ustad Daniel. You have so many people who are doing their own thing in their own way. That's very powerful. And, I, and I'm really happy with that. Wallahi, I'm really happy with that. And, you know, um, we should support everybody that's doing good work. Um, look, so yeah, so. So is that the main reason why you wrote the book? Because a, a, a father was concerned about his, his, his children that were going to. Mode me after reading the book saying now he has something to give to his students he's confident to send them to university Allah and, Akbar. um and so one of the reasons i wrote the book is you know what? it was just like a need it was like a burning need it was a it, there were, look there's multiple motivations you can't single out one motivation one motivation was i've done a hell of a lot of mistakes man i didn't have guidance around me there was not this like kind of social media movement with shiuk and different institutes and i wasn't connected to ulama i came from you know very kind of uh, interesting you know i was like the test case for social media i think just yeah, dawah and uh you know i've done a lot of mistakes and as i've grown i'm thinking oh god i don't recognize me three years ago i don't like me three years <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't like you five years ago. I'm like, oh my days. <laughs> and now every time I give a talk, it may sound really silly, but I always mention it. I'm like, you know, I'm on a journey. I've been on a journey, you know, because I don't. You know, one thing for me, I think one of my weaknesses is is not being understood. And if people if people want to understand me, how I was four years ago, um, not for me. It's it's, it's terrifying. I, I really, want people, I, I, you know, people deserve to be understood, and that's why. You know, one of the reasons was I wanted to be understood. I've changed. You know, I'm trying to make a robust book. I mean, I I went through all the references myself. I I even referenced YouTube clips. I took an idea from. That's how careful I was. I I'm not joking. You know, and let me be very honest. There were some original references, historical references that I I took from a historian, my a brother who is an academic. I, I didn't trust. Well, I did trust him, but. I said, you know what? Let me be sure. I got the books myself, and I got, and I knew it. There were some page numbers wrong. Instead, it was one one three one. It was supposed to be one one three. So I, before I did anything, I spent weeks. Um, before I published it, I spent weeks going through all the references as best as possible. Even where I've taken an idea from, I even spoke to uh, PhD students and academics on, you know, you know, what's the best ethical thing to do? They're like, you don't have to do what you're doing. I said, no, I want to tell them, even if I had a YouTube clip, even if it's not an academic one, but if I took the idea from them, I'm going to let them know. Yeah. And I've done that. Yeah. If you go through the references, you see, you know, this has been, this, this argument has been derived and taken from, for example, Sheikh Hamza's Yusuf uh, lecture on, um, you know, why God deserves praise, for example. And, and that's it. I did, I took the structure of his argument from there. And you, you know, it, that, that mode, it keeps you humble as well. Like these yeah, aren't your ideas. These aren't like we, we, we all, you know, the saying goes that we, we all stand on the shoulders of our scholars and uh, previous teachers, you know, and I think, well, when people say, oh, Sim, you know, you what you said on the podcast was amazing and things like that. And I'm like, you know, sometimes it, you feel like a, your ego kind of inflating for a second. And then you're like quickly explain to them, like, no, this is who I got it from. This is who taught it to me. And, and they're like usually befuddled, like, wait, what's wrong with this guy? Like, why is he like going out, out of his way to explain? Uh, like, the, you know, they're kind of surprised, you know? 
you know, there's some references where I say uh, I like to thank Abu Huraira for actually giving me uh, some of these arguments. It was to do with um, God of the Gaps and stuff like that. That's not his real name. He didn't want his real name to be there because he's very, very humble. But he likes cats. So he said, call me Abu Huraira. Right? <laughs> call right. me the father of cats. <laughs> I actually I know a British brother by the name of Abu Huraira too. <laughs> uh, but this, this brother wasn't British, by the way. He's okay. From the... <laughs> so, anyways, basically, yeah. Now, the reason I'm mentioning that is to show that you know I wanted to be careful and learn from my previous mistakes, and you know what the one of the main motivations of the book is to actually show that that you know there's a progress going on, and if if people look up to me for some reason, that they should look up to the fact that I I have acknowledged some mistake, many mistakes. And that we need to all move forward in a positive way, right? That's the first thing. And to also for the robustness of the arguments, like some of the arguments he'd be refining previously and I was going for a try and error period. And, you know, I wanted them to basically have something that was solid, you know, as solid as possible. Um, the other thing was, you know, there was a burning need to have a book, an Islamic version of, you know, uh, a modern version of, because of, of, I've been traveling up and down the world, around the world and up and down the country, the UK, at universities and people have the same questions and the same doubts and the same issues and I'm like you know even if I trained a hundred people to be like me or to be better even better than me right and we have many brothers who are training now that are much better than me like Subur Ahmed for example and others you know if they if if they we can't speak to everyone in the world and a book usually goes to people further than it goes than than, than talks to like you may have you know 10,000 hits in a, in a video right but that's a one-hour lecture, and majority of them would only have listened to the first ten minutes. But if someone reads a book, they're already connected, and they're really they're ready to go through that book. And you know, if you could, you know, get get ten thousand people to read a book, it's it's going to be much greater impact than ten thousand people watching video. Yeah. Um, so in the long term, if we're very sincere concerning the dawah, concerning articulating Islam and conveying the call. Uh, we need to write more and there's a lack of good Muslim books out there and that's why we're, I'm writing another book now called The Failed Hypothesis with Brother Sabur Ahmed it's a collection of essays Sabur Ahmed that name sounds familiar who is that? Uh, Sabur Ahmed yes check him out man he's the guy who deals with evolution okay uh, yeah yeah that's okay one of our boys man yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's a brilliant brother man. if he's your so, boy he's our boy inshallah you know what, boys? Yeah, we're all the brothers. <laughs> so uh, we have like 15, 20 minutes left uh, on the podcast. Can you answer some of these questions I was telling you about before uh, we wrap up um, that that some of our, our, our fans uh, and listeners sent us? Uh, so that did you did, did any specific questions stand out to you uh, that you wanted to address or should I just pick out, pick it out of a hat? Well, before I do that, apologies for being a... a um, Incoherent emotional wreck in this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> not at all, man. No, not man. at all. No, no, man. You're speaking no, your that, mind, man. And then it, this is something that we have in our academia that uh, the other uh, ideologies and, and beliefs don't have. That yep. that that you know that that personal connection that allows even our academics to relate to listeners and and things that yep. everyone's experiencing. It runs deep, man. That's what it is. So I, I thank you. Hey. Pick them out just just uh, pick them out <laughs> okay pick them out okay so one of the brothers i think uh, is uh, sheikh Hamra's good friend so i want to have to make sure we have to uh, we can't skip him uh he is saying my seven-year-old asked how god was created and i didn't have a good answer 
Okay, good. So, uh, see, what, there's a few ways to answer this question. Okay, the first way is when you say, "Ask how did something get created?" The assumption in that question is that that thing itself was actually created, meaning it had a beginning. Now, if that thing had no beginning, you can't answer that question. The question doesn't apply. So you can't say, "How was the thing that never began?" How did the thing that never began begin? It just doesn't make sense. Right. So the easiest way to do it is, well, Allah didn't have a beginning, right? Allah is eternal. He doesn't have a beginning and he will never have an end. And that's why it doesn't make sense to say what, who created Allah because he was always there. No one created Allah. He is uncreated. That's the first simple way of doing it. The second way of doing it is basically just referring to the fact that, well, okay, Say, for instance, we know that Allah created the whole universe, right? Allah created the whole universe. And now you're saying, who created Allah? Okay, well, why don't you raise that question to the creator of Allah then? So if you're saying something created Allah, then what created that thing that created Allah? Then just keep on asking the same question. Right. Well, what it created that thing that created that thing that created Allah. If that goes on forever, you will never have anything in existence in the first place because of what you call the absurdity of the infinite regress of causes. For example, if this universe was as a result of another universe and this universe was as a result of another universe and that goes on forever, we will never have this universe in the first place. Beautiful. Nice example is, imagine I have a water pistol with some water. It's a sunny day when we play fire and, and squirt water on our faces. Before I can squirt water on your face, I have to get the causal power or the permission, right, from someone else in order for me to squirt water in your face. Now, if that person has to do the same thing as well, and that goes on forever, will I ever squirt your face? No. <laughs> Hence the necessity <laughs> of one creator. Yeah, so it basically, as Al-Ghazali said, um, he basically said, you know, you, this, you could say what caused the cause of the universe, but if that goes on forever, then you never have the universe in the first place. Right. So by necessity... Uh, you need to, th 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 by rational necessity, there is an uncaused cause, an uncreated creator from that point of view. Um, because he also, there's an obsessive and infinite regress of causes. So that's one way of doing it too. The other way is, is just tell him to say, I believe in Allah and Allah is uncreated. I know that sounds really weird, but it depends why the question asked the, the question asked the question. Because some people ask these questions because of a spiritual issue or an existential issue rather than uh, an intellectual issue. And that's why you have the hadith, you have the hadith of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam when, you know, he said, just say, I believe in Allah, right? Yeah. Yeah. Or, or the other hadith that refers to the fact that this came from the jinns, right? So, um, the, the question itself. So, you, you, uh, you, you know, uh, Brother Hamza, the surah wal-asar. You know, yeah. so it, that's what it really is alluding to. That time is a is a creation, and that the beginning and end idea, the idea of, of the beginning and end, is a creation that has been put into our mind. Mm. That it's not really. Um, it's what we're bound by. Yeah, we're bound by. We're that. bound by time. Allah's yeah. not bound by time. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's another way of looking at it as well. I mean, and if you mean by time, physical time, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, you know, obviously, there's big debates about what time actually is. And time is and metaphysical time etc <laughs> right one quick way of of um of doing it like, like for example if you can do it with your children for example say just just have a suite right 
I say, you know, son, daughter, I want to give you the sweet, right? But you know, before I give you the sweet, I have to ask mommy if I can give you the sweet. Shall I do that? Okay. Yeah. Mommy, darling, can I give uh, the sweet to the kids? She's like, oh, I don't know. I think we have to ask uh, grandma, right? And then you go ask grandma. And then grandma says, you know what? I think I have to ask my grandma <laughs> or whatever, right? <laughs> Just say to the kids, now, if, I, if that goes on forever, are you ever going to get the sweet? Of course not. Well, exactly. So, you That's know, a great if, example, dude. That's if somebody created the creator and that goes on forever, would you ever have the creation in the first place? No. So just, you know, just, just be creative, you know. Great exercise. Um, another question. Why is there no trace of monotheistic religions in certain parts of the world? How is that compatible with the universality of the prophetic guidance claimed by the Quran? So the question is asking, why isn't there evidence of, um, other civilizations throughout time that um, called for monotheism uh, and how is it so because i think he's saying that how is there not guidance for you yeah. know remote parts of africa and then yeah. look i don't know history right? i'm not going right. to claim to know basis of this question or anthropology whatever the case may be yeah? but let's just analyze the question you know philosophically okay say you're right say there's areas in the world civilizations that never call to monotheism how does that now follow Islam and monotheism is not true? It doesn't. Um, there is no link between that conclusion right, and the conclusion that monotheism is not true because there are, there are, there are explanations within our tradition that can explain such phenomena. Namely, you know, these people, they had a clouded fitwa, right? They right. didn't express the fact that, you know, uh, that, that the divine deserves worship. Uh, they could have been the people of... Um, you know, uh, people who didn't receive any messengers, right? So there's so many things that you could actually explain away. It's not an evidence. And not, not only that, I'll go to the premise of the question as well, which is that you think all the historical evidence that we have is actually conclusive. By, by the very nature, this type of historical evidence is not conclusive. Maybe those civilizations did have a messenger that was according to the truth, but, you know, the documentation or, you know, or the inscriptions or whatever the case may be, were removed because they killed him. And we know yeah. many of the prophets were killed, right? Of course. And, so and we, know, we know there were tens of thousands of prophets throughout time yeah. uh, and throughout the, because we know the story of Miraj and how the, the prophet prayed at Masjid Al-Aqsa with tens of thousands of prophets. Uh, I, but the point here is, yeah. is sometimes it's better for people to understand their own question because right. they don't. Yeah? And mm. this is very powerful. If you get anything from this podcast, from a philosophical point of view, is to understand of questioning the question, not to be like, you know, uh, to try and win an argument, but to get people to think sincerely so it could awaken the truth within. Yeah, what For does example, your question actually mean? Yeah. Yeah, so one person asked me once, well, I wasn't, God didn't give me, uh, uh, what do you call it, permission, or what's the other better way of, a lot of social media justice warriors use this term. He didn't give me, um, ah, I forgot the word, uh, man. Yeah, uh, permission to give me life or, uh, or for me to come on earth, for me to be, uh, tested for what to, to, for me to be tested in this way. What's that word you use? Yeah, I'm thinking as well. Oh, man. Yeah, I now have to find that word. <laughs> We're going to spend another hour on this podcast just finding the word. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so the point is consent. That's it. Oh, consent. Uh, consent. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, Allah didn't give me consent in order for me to come on earth to be tested with this trial or to be tested in this way um, in order to see if I'm going to go paradise or hell, right? Now, some people just 
trying to answer the question. I'm like, well, why should you answer the question? Because the minute you try to answer that question, you're adopting a different metaphysic. Mm. At the end of the day, they're assuming that they own themselves. They don't. <laughs> you, Jack, Allah owns you. <laughs> he's under no, he's not morally obliged to ask you consent for anything. Right. You know, when I get some Play-Doh or some clay and I make a little sculptor, for example, and say, for example, I don't like the sculptor's nose now. I want to change his nose. Do I now ask the sculpt the the, 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 the thing that I've made, hey, can I change your nose? Right. No, I've made the thing. You can or, smash it thing. if you want. Or, or the author in a book and uh, the characters that, that were created in that book like those those characters didn't ask permission but this is very important because some Muslims sometimes have these questions like hold on a second yeah. I mean you back to basics the fundamental and this is linking to Allah's rububiyah a foundational aspect of um, uh, his, his, his oneness and tawheed which is the fact that he's the sole maintainer sustainer owner master loving nurturer of everything that exists which includes you so you know when you do this it's very powerful because now you've opened a new area of knowledge for that person by explaining why the assumption of their question was wrong. And now you're explaining aspects of who, who Allah is and right. aspects of his oneness and worship. Do you see the point? Yeah. So sometimes we have to be very careful that you don't have to answer the questions. So take this historical one, for example. Well, fine. You know, it doesn't undermine monotheism, right? Maybe the messengers were there and then they were killed and there was no, there's no trace of them. And there you go. Move on. It's, it's actually not a big deal in the grand scheme of things, right? Right. And it, and it gets you to understand the presuppositions behind the question, which is the supposition that this historical knowledge is factual uh, in an absolute way and that we have all historical knowledge and that there's probably, there's no other possibility of other historical explanation to explain why there wasn't an appearance of a call to monotheism in this particular area. Of course, there are many explanations that you can come up with. So it doesn't undermine Islam in any shape or form. And I think it's always very powerful to get people to think anyway, uh, rather than just give them an answer. You know, uh, there's another interesting question. Um, brother, One of the brothers sent on the page. How do we uh, combat the idea that there's a large... Uh, I'm paraphrasing here, by the way. Uh, how do we combat the idea that there is a significant portion of the scientific community that does not believe in God? For example... Like Neil deGrasse, Neil deGrasse Tyson, and others. Yeah. Um. And I think, like for example, I'll, I'll let you answer. Go ahead. Yeah. Look, we have to be, you know, careful here. Science does not lead to atheism. Even atheist scientists and philosophers of science agree with this. It's an academic consensus that science does not lead to atheism. Okay. So therefore. People's atheism or scientists' atheism is not as a result of scientific evidence. It's because they have a philosophical position. <laughs> yeah. Or they philosophize the scientific evidence in a particular way. But it's not the evidence itself, or it's not the theory itself, or it's not the confirmation itself, or it's not the science itself that has led directly to their atheism, generally speaking. Yeah? And you know, a study was done that a lot of, a lot of scientists' atheism is because of their background, and they you know they didn't have a connection with religion, or they didn't see it was um, it, it didn't you know it wasn't valid for them in their life. It, it didn't you know, it wasn't needed, or whatever the case may be. So. Yeah. Uh, there is no link between science and atheism in Asia. Before I actually, actually posted a lecture on my uh, YouTube page, Hamza Andreas Georges, uh, on uh, does science lead to atheism? Has religion killed? Uh, sorry, has science killed religion? 
Um, and I go through, you know, the four false assumptions that I write in the book on, you know, when people say science leads to atheism, there are four false assumptions. And I break down those four false assumptions. But it's not an academic exercise, really, because academics don't really um, agree with the notion that science leads to atheism, even though they're atheists themselves. And what's very, I know I could summarize by just quoting uh, Hugh Goach. He wrote the book uh, Scientific Method in Brief, published by Cambridge. He's a scientist and a philosopher and a philosopher of science as well. And he said, to claim that science leads to atheism is to get high marks for enthusiasm and low marks for logic. <laughs> right. right? And, and, and that's the case. So uh, uh, the explanation is, well, it's, not, it's got nothing to do with their science. And if you make the assertion that science leads to atheism, then you're adopting four false assumptions. And one th- of the four, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I'm sorry. One, one of the false assumptions is that science is the only way to render the truth about the world and reality. The other false assumption is that just because science works, it's true. Um, the other uh, third false assumption is that science leads to certainty. And the final assumption is that they have a misunderstanding of philosophical naturalism and methodological naturalism. Now, we don't have time to go through all of this. Yeah. I suggest go on to the lecture that or read the book or read the yeah. chapter in the book read it, the book uh, um and i just want to add on to that um there's this false notion among a lot of muslims and uh, people of faith actually that there's a wide um that, that that the scientific community is full of atheists and that's completely far from the truth i think a lot of the people like neil degrasse tyson get platforms on liberal media and they're able to talk about their atheistic beliefs on these large platforms. And the, the, the equivalent of the religious equivalent of him wouldn't, won't get that platform because exactly. um, the vast majority of scientists are, are, are religious people actually, or are, are believe in God. That's actually, I think, statistically proven. I'm not sure if, if there's any studies on that, but. It would be interesting if you know of anything like that, Brother Hamza. Think, think about the premise of the question as well. Yeah. And, and I would so what? If all the scientists in the world didn't believe in God, does that mean you shouldn't believe in God? Perfect. <laughs> I mean, Perfect. Well said. Of course. Just think about it, right? Of course. But and, for and some that, people, is that blunder, right? They actually feel like, hey, why is it that all the people who are quote-unquote knowledgeable in science, why are they not believing in God? Well, that kind of is that pushing point. What you're saying is absolutely correct. That's like the molecular question that should be asked, right? Who cares if all of the world scientists combined were on one scale and it's just you that's left. Forget about just a scientist. The whole entire world didn't believe in the creator and you're the only person left out of 7 billion. But for some people, just as, as an intro to the way they look at this world, they want to look at science, and, and you know, science solves everything, and, and I think they're blundered one, by 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 the science yeah, scientific look, scholarship. Science, we respect science, and we love science, and Muslims have an amazing history. Of science, to, to the fact where many historians of science actually attribute the kind of mod, modern origins of the scientific method to to Muslims, like Ibn al Haytham, for example. Obviously, there were many who were responsible, but they claim that Ibn al Haytham, um, he was, you know, he wrote the book on optics. He was one of the first to formalize the scientific method of experimentation, etc. So we have it as part of our tradition. But look, science is beautiful. But does it change? Absolutely. It's always yeah. changing. So it's changing. Is, it, is it based on induction? Yes. Um, and by if you study induction, you know that you may have a future observation that could be at odds with your previous conclusions. And that's the beauty of science. And if science works, it doesn't mean it's necessary, necessarily true. For example, you know, we had the theory of phlogiston in the 1700s. 
And the theory of phlogiston was that combustible objects would release phlogisticated air. And Dan Rutherford in 1772, he took that theory and he, he discovered nitrogen. But after they found that phlogiston was false. So what that teaches us is that you could get a scientific truth like nitrogen mm. from, from a once workable theory that now is false. So what works doesn't mean – just because something works, it doesn't mean it's true. Mm. Okay, One false assumption because um, if someone says, oh, science works, therefore it's true um, and – you know, if science can therefore only deal with things that you can observe and God can't be observed, therefore God is not true. It's fuzzy logic, but that's how they try to understand the world. Another thing is science leads to certainty. It doesn't. Most scientific conclusions essentially are based on induction. You don't have an infinite number of observations. You don't have the total set of observations. That's and true. The, the correct understanding and reasoning of those observations, right? You have particulars you have limited information and you may have a future observation that contradicts previous conclusions even even dawkins the evangelical darwinist for example right he said i think in his book the devil's chaplain he said that you know in i think it was 10 years or some time um we could have data that could be at odds with our conclusions about darwinism darwinism can completely change based on future data that's the beauty of science so science is not certain from that point of view it's 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 fluid. Yes, some things are well confirmed, but even well confirmed things can, you know, it could be a paradigm shift. Yes. So, and so therefore, the the you can't say science leads to certainty because that's a false assumption, um, and they use that false assumption because they're saying, well, if science leads to certainty, and science as a method can only address things that you can observe, and what can be observed, therefore, it doesn't exist. Fuzzy logic, but that's why that assumption is there. But it's a false assumption, just mentioned. The other false assumption is that science is the only way to render the truth about the world in reality. Well, that's not true. Science has so many limitations. Uh, limitations concerning morality, concerning you know, uh, understanding the purpose for things, uh, concerning the person, the first person in a subjective conscious experiences, for instance. Um, fundamentally, science can't prove necessary mathematical truths or necessary truths like deductive logic. Or you know, things that are unobservable. Yes, why is a mm. and you need deduction and logic and mathematics before you even do science. And for science to try and prove it is like arguing in a circle, which is which is ridiculous. So and what's very interesting, say in a deductive argument you have a conclusion that necessarily follows. So let's take for example John is a bachelor. No, so uh, so uh, let's start this way. Uh, yeah, John is a bachelor. Uh, bachelors are unmarried men, therefore John is an unmarried man. Now, that is a deductive argument. The conclusion necessarily follows. It's a valid deductive argument because the conclusion necessarily follows from the premises. The premises guarantee the truth of the conclusion. It's also sound because the premises are true. We, we've got good reasons to believe in them. Um, so a sound deductive argument is that not only is it valid that the conclusion necessarily follows, but the premises have um, some justification. Okay, So that's a sound deductive argument. Now, why is it? why does it necessarily follow? Why does it necessarily follow that John is an unmarried man now? Because you said John is a bachelor, bachelors are unmarried men, therefore John is an unmarried man. Why does it necessarily follow that John is an unmarried man? Now you may argue, oh, it's, 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 it's ne it necessarily follows by virtue of its meaning. No, we don't believe it's, it necessarily follows by virtue of its meaning because you could change the meaning. You may not know the meaning of the words and you still say it necessarily follows. Why? Mm. Because there is a logical relation with the, a logical relation with the, um, I forgot the word to use now, 
the logical relation with the logical properties in the premises. So the logical properties in the premises are John, bachelor, and man, and unmarried. So these four logical properties, there is a logical relation between them. Science, nothing in the empirical world can prove that logical relation. Zero. Nothing. Nada. Zada. Khalas. Finish. And I actually did this for my, the, for, my the, for my dissertation, right? And, you know, if you read the works of Professor Lawrence Bonjour, he actually, you know, argues uh, very profoundly for the a priori nature of, you know, logic, logical reasoning and necessary logical uh, truths. Um, a priori meaning prior to experience. You need it before you have any experience. So things like mathematics and logic and logical reasoning and deductive arguments, you can't prove them scientifically. So there is something outside of science that is true. So science is not the only way to form conclusions about the world and reality. or, or to, It's not the only way to understand truth. Another um, example is testimony. If you study Western epistemology and even Eastern epistemology, you see that testimony now is a fundamental and valid source of knowledge. But, you know, we rely on the say so of others. And I don't want to get into it. It's such a long discussion. But, you know, watch the lecture. I think you'd enjoy it. Um, but one thing I wanted to add is don't conflate direct observations with science. Like as Bertrand Russell said, science is observations and our reasoning upon those observation, observations to find the links, if you like, and any connections between them. A direct observation is not science. So, you know, when somebody says, oh, science that is factual, because when I see the moon, it's round. I know the moon is round. Uh, well, that's not really science. That's just, you just mirrored your observations, right? Right. And that's the point. People conflate that sometimes. You know, they conflate so, the scientific theories uh, with, with just one direct observation. They're not the same thing. They're two different things. But anyway, um, okay. there's much more to get into because yeah. science and does it lead to atheism? Uh, but that lecture's up now. So just enjoy it. This is the one that's called Has Science Killed Religion and Does Science Lead to Atheism? That's that one, the one. On, okay, yeah. That one was okay on digital member. Can yeah, you uh, five can ago. you give me that link? I will yes. put it in the episode description. Of course. Well, I, I, I know this sounds like I don't want to promote my own stuff, but Digital Member are very popular. They took it from my one. <laughs> <laughs> okay, gotcha. gotcha. I, I, humble little. I have like three videos. Miskeen. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, man. Uh, Hamza's uh, YouTube channel. Uh, if you just type in Hamza Dress my YouTube channel comes up in short. Okay. Final, last, lighthearted question. If you could be any Alp, who would it be? Do you watch Arturul, the the show on Netflix, uh, the Turkish show everyone's no, talking I, about? No, there's a huge buzzer by it. My friend actually bought the hat from eBay. Well. <laughs> <laughs> He's too so, busy, bro. But man, I you, you got to watch the show, man. I don't really watch TV. And nobody watches TV you know until they want to watch, until very, they see the show. It would be very, yeah, that's what they say. That's what they say. But you know what? I haven't watched it, so I can't answer the question. You know what? You know how okay. he, you know how he relaxes and he unwinds when he's uh, when he's well, he's uh, watching boxing, right? He no, not no, but that's secondary. He, you ever seen those videos of him punching the punching bag, bro? Oh, mashallah, he's a beast, bro. He that's how he vents, isn't that right, bro? Actually, uh, I train boxing. Mashallah, can diet as well. Um, I tell you really not, not, I'm not an ideological vegan in any shape or form by the way I'm just trying it out and I've been reading a book called How Not to Die not that I want to know how not to die which is impossible by the way <laughs> you've been talking to Muhammad Gilan yeah he, he's I'm, an ardent I'm, he's an ardent vegan the problem with Dr. Gilan's article I think was 
that he didn't suggest that we go to we create halal ways of having organic ethical meat. That was the only problem. Uh, but I, I, with most of it, I agreed it. I agreed with it because if you think about it, just, yeah. just ask us a question: Would the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam eat meat that was injected with these poisons? I don't know. I, I don't think so. I find it very difficult to say that he would. Would yeah. the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam slaughter meat that was treated? And you know the, the, these animals were treated in a barbaric, inhuman, inhumane way. I don't know. I find it very difficult that he would do so. Yeah. So supporting such a system and such a and such a, uh, you know, whatever yeah. it, is, it, it would it be in the highest, you know, would it be in line with Islamic ethics? I don't know. I find it very difficult. Um, so, you know, therefore the vegan diet is probably the most ethical from an Islamic point of view. But it's not the the kind of ideological veganism which basically says that you know animal life and human life are the same kind of thing and that intrinsically eating animal meat is 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 unethical that would be for me haram you could never say such a thing right? that'd be wrong yeah um because we have our own spiritual understanding of animals that the animals are muslim an animal has been designed to to be at service to the human being and when it gets sacrificed in the proper way in the most humane way in the most spiritual way that that animal is is that sakina they have peace that they a muslim and the animal has now become part of another Muslim to give him energy to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You know, one, one other proactive uh, uh, point I think is instead of going full vegan, is that just learn how to hunt, man. Just start hunting, dude. Or go with somebody that hunts, dude. Yeah, you yeah, know? but you know, there's a lot of pressure on, at least in the, the United States, there's a lot of pressure on a lot of these um, places that, that raise cattle and, and uh, other animals that, that, you know, to treat them humanely and they've gotten a lot better about it i i don't think it's, it's as bad as it was a few yeah, years ago in like you know for example chicken in america i believe a quarter of a chicken breast has enough salt in it for your whole day that's a quarter of a chicken breast wow now that's sodium because they because uh, they plump them up to make yeah. make them way more and it's and god knows what other poisons exist in our meat so look the point is, Allah says, halal, eat the halal and the tayyib, and, and, and the pure and the yep. good things, right? Yeah. If we have the ethical principle, then generally speaking, you should be eating more whole, whole foods, grains, nuts, vegetables, fruits, dates, for example. Um, you know, and if you get your milk from cows that are organic, that haven't been injected with hormones, they don't have like all these medicines and poisons in them. Um, and the cow hasn't been treated inhumanely, like forced. You know, sometimes they 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 they, they over they over what you call it, milk the cow and it damages the cow. Yeah, you, know, if you can find a cow like that and do it. Like we have, there's a farm in Oxford, um, amazing farm. It's called Willowbrook Farm. It's done by amazing Muslim family. I think a lot of them are converts to Islam, and they treat their animal. I've been there. I camped there. They treat the animals like as if the family, and it's organic. Respect, it's part of the family. It's really, really nice. So I would say you could know, source from there, but it would be more expensive, which is good because we overeat, man. We we yeah, overeat. Yeah. Like wallahi, you know, the person said the worst thing you could do, you could feel is that the, the worst vessel you could feel is the stomach. Yep. You know, and and there is a spiritual like read Al Ghazali's book, uh, one of his books in his Ihya, which is on breaking the two desires, the sexual desire and your stomach overeating. Um, and it's, it's a very severe thing, but our Muslim community, one of our biggest vices is overeating. Even du'at, with all due respect, some du'at and speakers are just fat, man. Yeah, yeah, man. So, 
Absolutely. I, I always I, say that. And I remember when I was young, I, I'd say, like, you're talking about, you know, my bad habits. Look at you, you know? It's, yeah. It, it was, look, benefit of the doubt, some people may have genetic issues, hormonal issues. Notwithstanding that, generally speaking, we have an unhealthy appetite that we excessively eat too much meat. The Prophet was a quasi-vegetarian. Um, and we don't, we're not healthy anymore. Many, like, many marriages fail because of this. I know this sounds very shallow. No, we it's, live in a, it's true. We live in a hypersexualized world, right? I had a sincere, practicing elder, no, not elderly, but he was older than me, brother. He couldn't tell his wife about his problems he's had with her for 15 years, which was about her weight. And it's made him like really like think about his marriage in a very dark, serious way. And I'm like, oh my God. Okay, fine. They should improve the communications. That's for sure. And in the way they speak to each other and they should be more open and, you know, yeah. there's a sensitivity. But I'm a little bit more, I'm a little bit more, you know, we break plates at weddings. That's what Greeks do. So I'm a little bit more straight. I'd be like, excuse me, there's an issue here. I'm going to help you. Because, yeah. you know, this is important. And, you know, we overeat, you know, we, we overeat and it's, and it's a sign. It's a spiritual disease, man. Spiritual no, um, try this. I mean, I'm not sure, sure if you're already trying this, but if the listeners want to try uh, this idea of intermittent fasting, just realize how little your body needs food by trying this diet where you just basically drink water. Uh, Sheikh Hamra can explain it much faster than I can. Uh, how long do you do it for? Uh, some days, I mean, I tried at first something called the warrior, warrior diet where you have a four-hour eating window. And you fast for 20 hours. It's actually not that difficult because if you have your meal, last meal at 8 p.m. at night, you wake up in the morning, have a nice glass of water, get ready for work, and your first meal at lunchtime, you know, which is at like 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock maybe, you you fasted for 17 to 18 hours without even trying. And you, I, sometimes I just come back home and eat. I don't really eat all day. So that way I have like a 4-hour, 5-hour, 6-hour eating window. So he told me about this, and I, I was first skeptical. I'm like, oh, man, this might be really hard. But within a few days, you realize how go away. Yeah, yep. you don't need that much food. And if you're short on energy, you could just have black coffee, man. You'll be all good. And then, you know, when I break my fast, I eat regular food. Like, I don't even think about carbs or anything. I just eat whatever I want, and I don't have to. And you get full really fast that way, yeah. too. And you don't even want to eat after that. Exactly. So you end up eating, like, one meal a day. And one of the best ways to do it, because I know you work out, and I'm telling you, my PRs, my best records I've ever broken have been in Ramadan, but I work out right uh, before iftar. My days, me too. Like for example, my 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 strongest deadlift was in a state of fasting. Me too, deadlift too. Exactly, the strongest deadlift I ever did was in Ramadan. Absolutely, exactly, exactly. You know, is I don't want to come across that. Like, oh, I we know it all on this food stuff. Look, I have many shortcomings, yeah, but, but I think my final advice on this food issue is. Let's just be a little bit more ethical, more Quranic in terms of our food, yeah. more spirit filling our stomachs, yeah. uh, in terms of our vices. Yeah. And to summarize this, you know, from the Muslim community point of view, I went to a local canteen and uh, next to the office and it was a Muslim brother, Afghani. And I said to him, Oh bro, I'm trying vegan food. He looked at me <laughs> he looked at me, a vegan diet, he looked at me like with like almost hate. Like, <laughs> but he was like but you know what he said? He replied by saying, Oh, and it looks like you're going to be leaving Islam soon as well. <laughs> <laughs> Bro, I, I couldn't catch my breath. I was like, oh, God. And then I explained to him what I meant about, you know, I don't want the poisons in it. It's not to do, you know, the fact that I don't like meat or it's haram or anything. Of course not. And we should be more ethical. And, and then he got the point. 
But, you know, we have this thing about meat, right? We overeat too much. Yeah, man. Khair, yeah. I need to go. Yes, um, yes. Wallahi, we're we're, we're way over time now. Okay, but one last question before we leave. Uh, what do you think about the Habib uh, Nurmagomedov fight against, uh, against uh, what's his name? What's his name again? He's fighting. Uh, 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 do you watch UFC at all? Uh, I do, yeah. I'm actually gonna probably watch it in the weekend. Right. Yes. Who who do you got? Who do you got on that fight, Habib or? Uh, well, it has to be Habib. I've been following him on Instagram. There's some good, good Islamic one, so we support the brother. All right, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Anthony Joshua fight. Um, so that was an interesting fight, Anthony Joshua. He, he's going to be re- rematching with what's the name Deontay Wilder soon, right? Yeah, I think so. I, I think Deontay Wilder might get him. Uh, he's so? got longer, uh, and he could bridge the gap. I think AJ quick. got this, man. You know what? AJ is really good, um, and he, and he learns. He progresses really well. Like yeah, he c- still very young. Thought Parker might be him because uh, he has some shortcomings and mistakes, but he covered them all up in this fight. He was really good defensively with his jab, with his right hand up, uh, even with his movement. Although he needs to improve with his angles and movements a bit. But you know what? He's. Uh, I think he was going to be in the game for. I think even the next 10, 12 years. Oh yeah, yeah. He's he's yeah. very young still, man. Yeah. Humble, and he's got good brothers. He's got good Muslim brothers around him. So, all right. Um, the divine, the divine reality is available on Amazon. Um, do you have any preferred vendors, brother Hamso? No, I mean a lot of the. Uh, you could get thirty percent of the book off my website anyway. Okay. Those the free. The essays. A lot of the essays are there. Um, Beautiful. So yeah. So go go to go to the website. Uh, What's it called? HamzaSources.com? I'll include the yep. link in the description. Make sure you guys check it out. Um, brother Hamza, thank you so much for coming on. Thank awesome you for giving, you us, brother. Uh, giving yeah. us your precious time. And emotional, may Allah bless you. <laughs> <laughs> for questions, comments, and concerns, you can email us at themadmamluks at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Make sure you follow us on YouTube um, for, you know, follow what's it called subscribe button if we get a thousand we'll start considering putting these episodes on video uh, format for you guys so there's an incentive for you all right for my for our guest sheikh hamza <laughs> and my co-host sheikh hamza Saeed. my name is sim assalamualaikum Sorry.